This is Richard Pothig, continuing on the sidewalks of New York with Chapter 13, Reclaiming a Heritage. I returned to the campus emotionally drained. At my first morning chapel, fellow students came up to me to express their condolences. During the chapel service, the dean welcomed me back and extended the college community's sympathy on the death of my mother. Outside the chapel, the freshness of early spring was in the air. The day was bright as the sun shone through the newly budding trees. In the midst of my sorrow, I felt a sense of renewal. Malcolm Boggs, at whose home I had been when I received the call to return home, came to me for a decision. He had been urging me to run for the student senate. Now's the time to run for the junior seat on the student senate. People know you. We need you in the student government. He pressed me. The election for the student senate is in two weeks. We have to know now. But I won't be a junior until the second semester next year, I said. How can I represent the class when I'm still a sophomore in the first semester? Malcolm counted. Don't worry about that. As long as you're a junior the second semester, the people won't even raise the question. Besides, there are no real competitors for the position. All right, I'll run, I told him. My name was put up for the junior class representative to the student senate. Nobody raised any questions about my class status. The elections were held and I won the junior seat. In May, the newly elected student senate met for a briefing with the outgoing members. I had entered on my student political career. Before classes had ended in June, Dean Racky Young came to me with news of a special scholarship being offered to a pre-ministerial student. The qualification was that the recipient had to have lost one or both parents. A childless couple from the College Hill Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati were offering the college a scholarship to the student who qualified. The college submitted the names of Russ Tillotson and myself to Fred and Margaret Moore. The Moores decided to split the scholarship between us. It was a relief to both of us to have our next year's tuition cut in half. I left for New York with a substantial part of my next year's school obligations in hand. I had tied down several other jobs for the fall to cover other expenses. My college board job was assured. I would continue to work in the Holden dormitory kitchen. That covered my food bill. Elliot's dry cleaning and laundry signed me up again as their agent in the fall. I also heard that Worcester Flora was looking for an on-campus agent. I visited their shop on the square. Mr. Mayfield was cordial. He agreed to take me on as his mum and corsage man on the campus for a 20% commission. Mums were the hot items at the fall home football games. Corsages were big business at Saturday night dances for all those with budding romances. In May, I had thrown my name into the hopper for the job as business manager of the 1947 Index, the student yearbook. The job carried a stipend, the bulk of the work was to pay the bills and to solicit advertising to help defray publication expenses. They gave me the job. 
I would be working in a team with Gene Scott, who had been chosen as the editor of the index. Two months had passed since my mother's death. My father was still adjusting to the void her death had left in his life. Erna, my sister who was 12, had taken on the task of the woman of the house. She missed our mother, but she had much to do in both the school and around the house, so she had little time to mourn. One of the constant fears she lived with was the unexpectedness of our father's epileptic seizures. She described them to me with great apprehension. My immediate task was to find summer employment. I needed a job that would help out at home and leave something for the coming year's expenses. Work was not easy to find in the summer of 1946. More people were in the job market. Industries which had counted on war contracts were now either out of business or were retooling for a peacetime economy. Returning GIs had first options on most jobs. I followed up the lead through the YMCA to work with a summer program in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. The Williamsburg YMCA director interviewed me and hired me after the interview. I was to develop an in-city summer camp program for 11- and 12-year-old boys. Most of my charges would be from the Ridgewood section of Queens. This was my summer for field trips. It was a sure way to slow down energy-packed pre-teenage boys, keep them moving, and take them to unfamiliar scenery. One thing I knew from personal experience, New Yorkers rarely venture outside their own neighborhoods, so we spent a summer exploring the terrain of New York. By the time summer was over, I was a well-traveled New Yorker. Life in the South Bronx at 732 East 137th Street was also new turf for me. Our family had moved just as I was making my journey to Ohio in early 1945. Living in our corner of the South Bronx was an experience in isolation. The tenement apartment my parents had chosen was on the edge of a major manufacturing and warehouse area of the South Bronx. It was in a cluster of four-story tenements separated from other South Bronx housing by the Bruckner Boulevard, a six-lane north-south highway cutting along the eastern edge of the Bronx heading toward Pelham Bay and points north. In crossing Bruckner Boulevard, one had to make a mad dash across six lanes at 138th Street to beat a quickly timed traffic light to reach our community on the other side of the highway. In the summer of 46, I missed my Yorkful community with its familiar sights and smells, its colorful shops, its theaters, my church community, and my old friends. Nineteen years was a long time to become deeply rooted in the neighborhood. I made it through my first summer in the South Bronx, and I came to respect the handful of people who lived on our side of Bruckner Boulevard. Isolation makes for cohesiveness. There was a built-in sense of people watching out for one another. As the summer wore on, it became apparent that this was a good community for my father and sister. There was security for Erna, who was now in junior high. 
She had acclimated herself to the school system in the South Bronx. Her outgoing nature had already made her a number of good friends. Even though my mother's brother Paul and his wife May lived nearby, Erna bore much of the day-to-day -day responsibility of the care for our father. During the summer, I witnessed one of my father's seizures. It was a frightening experience. The convulsions racked his body in fitful spasms. I put a towel in his mouth so he would not bite his tongue. Otherwise, there was nothing I could do except to make sure he did not hurt himself and wait until the seizure was over. Then it was a matter of time before he would regain his composure. There was no way of knowing when a seizure would happen. One can only hope that he would not be doing something which would endanger his life. On one of our trips to the specialist, who had been provided by Liberty Mutual Insurance under workman's compensation, the doctor suggested that sometime in the future my father undergo neurological observation for possible surgery. In the meantime, the doctor said that the Dilton was the only medication that would cut down on the frequency of the seizures. September had come, and it was my time to return to Worcester. The summer had provided time for getting perspective. The past eight months had been filled with pain, sorrow, and loss. All I could say to my father was that my decision to complete my education was the right one. I was doing well academically. It was only a matter of time before I would be finished. And he resisted the road I had taken. He neither understood my decision nor my aspirations. There had never been any real conflict between my father and myself. We had gotten along well together. It wasn't that he never got angry, but I never was the brunt of that anger. His anger, when he expressed it, was generally directed at other members of the Pothic family. Nor do I ever remember him speak a prejudicial word against any other ethnic or religious group. This well could have come from his upbringing in a household where religion was not a deeply held belief. Within the family, he was regarded as the black sheep. The fact that he had married my mother was a bone of contention in his family. They knew of my mother's tuberculosis and was concerned for him and any family he might have. They were even more upset when he provided the money so she could take the cure at the sanitarium at Saranac Lake. But he loved her and did things the way that he wanted them done. One of my inheritances from my father was our mutual loyalty to the New York Giants baseball team. Whenever there was a national holiday and the Giants were in town, we would be at the polo grounds rooting for the Giants. His dedication to the New York Giants went back to the turn of the century. There was hardly a great play he hadn't seen. He had been there when Fred Merkel forgot to touch second base and lost the pennant for the Giants or when Snodgrass made a miraculous catch just as lightning struck the polar grounds during a thunderstorm, or the no-hitter that Christy Matheson pitched. We also made fishing trips to Pelham Bay or to the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. At Pelham Bay, we bought our sandworms, rented a rowboat, and set our bells to catch and fish for flounder. We would row out into the bay just far enough so if it rained, we could make it back without getting drenched. We'd screw in the bells into the edge of the rowboat, bait the hooks, and drop the lines over the side. Then we'd wait for the bells to ring and haul in our flounders. We never missed bringing home a sack of flounders. 
plotting was to crab on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. We would catch the Dykeman Street Ferry on the Upper West Side of Manhattan early in the morning, first stopping to buy whitefish for bait. On the New Jersey side of the Hudson, we would position ourselves on the rocks underneath the newly built George Washington Bridge. We'd bait our crab nets with the whitefish and throw them off the rocks into the Hudson River. Then we would sit and wait, sometimes 10 or 15 minutes. If the crabs were hungry, then there might be 20 or 30 minutes if they were slow. Then we'd quickly jerk on the nets and haul them in. There always seemed to be a catch of crabs or eels in the nets. The fun was bringing home the sack of crabs and eels on public transportation. An accident such as a loose crab or two would send people scrambling from their subway seats. The disagreement between my father and myself was that we had been prepared to live in different worlds. His education had not been beyond junior high. He, in fact, left junior high, the same one I had graduated from to go to work. Except for his time in the U.S. Army during World War I and until his accident in 1945, he worked for Sunshine Biscuits in Long Island City and he was fortunate to have held on to his job during the Depression years. As a youngster during the height of the Depression, there was always a feeling of apprehension around the house about his being out of work. There was no unemployment insurance, nor was there Social Security. His job was all that he had. He believed that I should work in the same way. Higher education were for those whose station in life it was to be a professional, or who had the money to pay for it. My mother had different aspirations. She gave me encouragement and took pride in my achievements in school and in church. She had opened up a different way for me. I left New York for Ohio in September knowing that the matter with my father had not been resolved, nor would it ever be. I returned to Worcester in the autumn of 1946 with the perspective of being a long-distance runner. I knew the goal toward which I was running. There was a long way to go, two and a half years of college and another three years of seminary, but it was an achievable goal. I had to pace myself. I had to be able to survive the crisis of the past year, and I knew I was on my own. It was up to me to finish the course. I jumped into the fall schedule with determination. I paced myself between my classes and my work schedule. The various jobs I had taken on, all four of them, kept me moving. I had my regular board job in the kitchen of Holden Dormitory to cover my food. I continued as agent of Elias Dry Cleaning and Laundry, and beginning in the fall, I was to be the agent for Worcester Floral. In the coming year, I was the business manager for the 1947 Index. I took time to be involved in Section 3 activities. The section provided an opportunity to invite a variety of women to dances. I played the field and tied myself down to no one woman. As the semester wore on, I became more involved in the student government. I was appointed to the Student Faculty Relations Committee and was elected treasurer of the Student Senate. This became a fifth job since it carried with it a stipend. The student government had come into the new academic year with a deficit budget. 
I propose that we run a campus-wide dance in the gym after one of the home football games. We would charge for the dance in order to balance the students' government books. Instead of hiring a band, we would use records and a good sound system. There was some grumbling about the need to hire a band, but the dance was well attended. Our gate receipts brought us out of financial crisis. For the rest of the year, the student center operated in the black. My reputation as in the black student treasurer had built me some future political capital. I had decided to major in history. Eileen Dunham had won me over to the field of history as study. I began gravitating to campus events concerned for the future of the world community. I was drawn to a former veteran, Ted Fenton, who in the campus discussions showed perceptive political insight. Ted lived with his wife in the barracks behind Scoville Hall set aside for married students. Ted Fenton began inviting people over to his small living room after particularly heated discussions. It soon became a regular event on Friday night or after some special event to gravitate over to the Fenton's living room. People looked forward to the continuation of the discussions at the Fenton's digs. There was always a pot of coffee brewing and some floor space to squeeze in another body. It was not long before those who gathered at the Fenton's evening coffee clutches came to be regarded as the liberals on campus. I never thought much about whether I was a liberal or a conservative. Those labels had no meaning for me. I had not yet voted in a political election, so even my official political commitment had not been made. I had been attracted to the Fenton's gatherings because the issues we discussed were important to me. They spoke directly to the world in which I had grown up. I had become more directly aware of my grandfather Pothic's socialist heritage. Somewhere along the way in my teens, I had heard about my grandfather's politics. When we were asked to write a paper in freshman English about one of our antecedents, I decided to do my grandfather Pothig. I wrote a story about my grandfather arriving in the United States as an exile. I gave it the title, A Disciple of Marx. The English professor, Coolidge, was impressed with the story. You are a different addition to Worcester, he told me. There are not many people of your background here. At one of the meetings at the Fenton's, a regular coffee clutcher, Anne Austin, announced she had heard from a person named Jesse Cavalier, who was organizing student groups for the Student League for Industrial Democracy. He would be on campus in a month, and she was inviting us all to a meeting with Cavalier. I went to hear Jesse Cavalier speak about the world economic situation and how his organization, the League for Industrial Democracy, had been dealing with world economic issues since the 1920s. He spoke about his clergy background and how the Christian faith was related to the issues of injustice in the world and in the economy. We invited Jesse over to the Fentons after the meeting and all the others who might be interested in learning about the Student League for Industrial Democracy. The meeting with Jesse Cavalier brought on the organization of a student chapter of the League for Industrial Democracy. Some of us had read the material on the League and the pamphlets that the League had published on economic and political issues. 
We signed up 25 students as members of the Student League. Many were the regulars at the Fenton's evening gatherings. Several of my friends from New York joined the group. Dick Frothingham, a friend from Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church, had decided to attend Worcester after he mustered out of the army. Mary Barsamian, who had been part of my gang of friends from 83rd Street, also made the long journey to Worcester. Mary's family, Armenian immigrants, owned a grocery store on East 87th Street, just down the block from the family restaurant at which Uncle Bill Wagner was the bartender. Mary was a colorful character around Worcester and added her own unorthodox flavor to campus life. Student League for Industrial Democracy, SLID, meetings also attracted some of the international students on campus. They found the politically liberal spirit of the group congenial to their views of the world. One overseas student who attended the meetings was Elena Hermatka, the daughter of Josef Hermatka, the major theologian of the Czech Brethren. Josef Hermatka had been teaching at Princeton during the war years, and after high school in Princeton, Elena chose to attend Worcester. Elena told me that while she sympathized with the views of the group, she could not join any political organization while she was in the United States. Her father played a crucial role in the first assembly of the World Council of Churches meeting in Amsterdam in 1948. He had a face-off at the assembly with John Foster Dulles, who was to become U.S. Secretary of State. Dulles had been a strong promoter of Western capitalism and a vocal critic of communism. Hamartka was to become a central figure in maintaining the witness of the church in the midst of the communist rule in Czechoslovakia. He was a founder of the Christian Peace Conference based in Prague and became known for his stance on the church in the midst of socialism. Under the early leadership of Ann Austin, the SLID held a series of issue meetings to which professors were invited to make presentations. Student members of SLID who were engaged in political or in economic independent study research projects presented them for discussion. Our members were the best evangelists for our meetings. Some of the students were for the first time exploring the world of independent political thought. We continued to draw in new students to our discussions. We held an election in the spring of 1947. Ann Austin was a senior and would graduate in June. We elected a core planning group, which I was chosen to chair in the coming academic year. My increasingly liberal political views had not gone unnoticed by some of my Section 3 brothers. Most of them came from staunch Republican families. There were subtle and sometimes not so subtle references to my politics and to my fellow traveling friends. Some of the jibes came from a few of the returned veterans. Most times this was in jest, but I recognized a benign sufferance to what some considered my socialist point of view. But there were others like Malcolm Boggs who were sympathetic to my leanings and encouraged me in my pursuits. Generally, I maintained good relations with my dormitory mates, particularly those who were my peers. 
My third section roommate, Bill Johns, was a geology major. He was from a Worcester family. His father was the executive in the Gerstenslager Truck Company, which manufactured specialized truck bodies. Bill had no strong political feelings, and if he did, he never made them known to me. I had taken Bill on as my co-agent for the Elliott Dry Cleaning and Laundry. Bill's claim to fame was the Model T touring car, which he owned. We used the car on occasion for student election campaigns, especially when one of our own section brothers was the candidate. The car was a great attraction from which to make campaign speeches. On the door, Richard! The student elections for the Senate for 1947-48 academic year were upon us in the spring. A number of my friends prevailed upon me to run for the president of the student senate. I had gained visibility as the treasurer of the student senate, which provided me leverage among the student body. There were four candidates for the president's position. Ned Schreffler was the strongest competitor in the election. The race ended in a runoff between Schreffler and myself. Schreffler, a veteran, had strong support from the jocks and the women's campus sororities. I had support from the religious community and the political liberals. One of the popular songs in 1947 was Open the Door, Richard. My supporters plastered the doors of Cow Call, the academic building with posters crying out, Open the door for Richard. Campaign ingenuity was not enough. Schreffler won in the runoff collection. Richard, open the door, please. Open the door, Richard. Open the door and let me in. Open the door, Richard. Richard, why don't you open that door? The election of the Big Four officers followed the student Senate election. The Big Four were the four major religious organizations on campus, the YWCA, the YMCA, the Freshman Forum, and the Sunday Evening Forum. It planned and conducted the major religious events on campus. After losing the student senate president race, several women friends came to me and asked me to run for the president of the Big Four. My immediate response was to say no. They were careful not to make it appear that this was a consolation prize. One of the group, Mary Ellen Frazier, said that they felt there was a need to broaden the philosophical base of the Big Four. It had to move beyond its general religious context. She hoped that the content of the programs could deal with more justice issues. I thought this direction had merit, so I agreed to run for the office. The election did not attract as much attention as the student senate race. I was elected without opposition. Open the door, Richard. How you know it's a Richard, why don't you open I know I got on the only suit. The year had been rewarding for me academically. I had chosen history as a major and had done well enough in my courses to be invited to join the Phi Alpha Theta, the history honorary. My history studies had made me more sensitive to my working class background and to the movements for social change coming out of the recent war. I returned to New York in the summer of 1947, hoping to find a job which would build up my experiences of the past at college. I visited the League for Industrial Democracy offices on East 19th Street. Our Worcester chapter had been one of the most successful among all the Midwestern colleges. I had a ready welcome from Dr. Harry Laidler, the executive director of the League. 
He invited me to one of the league board meetings to present the work of one of the league's student groups. The board was a collection of trade union officials, mostly from the garment unions and a wide range of intellectual folk. After the meeting, Dr. Layla introduced me to Nat Minkoff, an official from the Dress Joint Board of the International Lady Garment Workers Union. Nat Minkoff offered me a job for the summer, working in the welfare department of the Dress Joint Board. The Dress Joint Board was composed of locals 22 and 67. This was my summer to get acquainted with the world of the garment workers and the garment district of New York City. Thank <laughs> you.